Good morning. Our scripture reading for this morning is Hebrews chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's try that again. This is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Some of you are saying, who day? Today? Hopefully? All right. I saw a group of kids in the hallway, and I said, uh, if I see you talking or acting up, I'm going to call you out by name. Make you come up in front and do push-ups. I was one of your kids I was talking to, right? <laughs> the title of this sermon today is uh, In the Grip of God, or I could have entitled it The Rest of Pastor Matt's Sermon. <laughs> Verse 13 of Hebrews 4, we're, we're going to just dip down one more time into some warnings. You're like, oh man, I thought we were done with these warnings. But uh, in, the, uh, in the words of Henry V, once more under the bridge, dear friends, once more, or close the wall up with our English dead. We're going to pound this into you till you get it, because that's what the author is doing. So the Spirit of God... Um, did not allow Pastor Matt to see verse 13 last week because he wanted us to see it today. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Obedience to God's word is the fruit of genuine faith. So the last several weeks, we've been talking about these warnings, persevering, striving. Who is really a sheep? Who is a goat? How do I know if I'm a sheep? What if I'm a goat? Persevering, because God is preserving, striving to enter. And all of it can really be summed up in this, that those who are the elect, those who are God's own, will persevere, and they will obey God's word, because that is the fruit of genuine faith, obedience to the word of God. Charles Spurgeon says of God's word, if you wish to know God, you must know his word. If you wish to perceive his power, you must see how he works by his word. If you wish to know his purpose before it comes to pass, you can only discover it by his word. The word of God is the MRI, as it were, of our faith. The word of God discerns the thoughts and the intentions of our heart. The test for our faith is seen in the doing of what God says. Do you hear that this morning? The test of our faith is seen in the doing of what God says. Unlike that unbelieving wilderness generation, those who heard but did not do. 
Unlike them, those who are truly Christ and belong to him, believe what God says and act upon it, walking in faith and repentance. This verse has been quoted throughout the last couple weeks in our sermons. John 10, 27, my sheep, Jesus is saying, hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. They follow me. There is a comfort that the good shepherd knows his own. But a test to determine whether or not they are his own is if they will follow him or not. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. If you obey his word. James 1, 22-25 reminds us of this. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But no one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, will be, he will be blessed in all of his doings. Being doers of the word and not hearers only is the only proper response to the word of God. Please hear that this morning. As you listen to me work through the passage this morning, remember that being doers of the word and not hearers only is the only proper response to the word of God. Whether you're listening to it being preached, whether you're reading it on your own, doers of the word. Not only of the gospel, but all of the scriptures, the entirety of the Bible. Looking very intently at your face in the mirror and then forgetting what you look like is the example given here to explain the craziness of examining yourself in the mirror of God's word and then doing nothing about the imperfections you see there. Common sense reasons that when you are looking in the mirror and see that you still have breakfast in your beard, you will do something about it. Some of you will. Perhaps some of you don't. You say, I'm saving it for later. The mirror of God's word is no different. Here's the danger of hearing the word of God and not doing the word of God. The Christian life is mandated by the word of truth. The Christian life is mandated by the word of truth. This is characterized by both truly hearing and then resolutely doing the truth. Obedience to the truth of God's word is the hallmark for the true child of God. Obedience to the word is the true hallmark of the true child of God. It's not love or this or that or the other. Those are pieces, but how do we know what love is? By understanding it from his word and walking in obedience to what he says it should look like. So we should learn to hear God's word, trust God's word, and obey God's word. Those who hear the word of God without taking it and applying it to themselves discover that their capacity for both apprehension and appropriation will steadily dwindle until it disappears altogether. Or as one preacher has said, the more we listen to the scriptures, 
without being changed by it, the less likely we will ever be changed by it. If you don't do it, then you'll begin to lose your capacity to understand what the truth really is. Make up your own truth and walk in that. If you are a hearer of the word of God and not a doer also, you will lose your ability to hear the word of God. You will lose both of those things. Do not be like that rebellious generation who heard the same message as we have heard. Where does it say? They did not listen. Hebrews 4.2. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. They did not combine the message of God with faith in God. You'll notice in verse 13 that the author of Hebrews here has seamlessly now moved from referring to God's word, where he's talking about that in verse 12. Now in verse 13, he has moved now to talking about God himself. You see that transition? He's talking about the word of God. Now he's talking about God himself. He's kind of seamlessly, we don't even really catch it unless we look closely. He's saying precisely this. God is synonymous with his word. The word of God acts as God himself. So that one's most innermost thoughts and intentions are exposed. And this happens continually in the Christian's life. All the time, exposing the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And the true believer will rejoice at this. They will rejoice that their God has spoken. That's why we say, thanks be to God for his word, even over the stuff that we find hard. Thanks be to God, because it is right. And if I am struggling with it, I know I am wrong. And I have to conform my will to it, not try to conform it to my will. The true believer understands this, that if you don't know the word, then you don't know Jesus. If you don't love the word, then you don't love Jesus. If you don't obey the word, then Jesus is not your Lord. For Jesus himself said this, if you love me, you will what? You will obey my commandments. How often do we claim that we love Jesus, that we are striving to enter his rest, that we are a sheep, and yet we do not do the things that he says to do. We do not believe him. The warnings in this passage here, as it kind of comes to an end in verse 13, and we begin to kind of transition to a new thought. The warnings in this passage end with this final flourish of the two-edged sword. One final warning. We must give an account. We must give an account. And we cannot hide. Everything is laid bare before God. Nothing escapes his gaze. A verse that my parents had me memorize as a kid. Kids, stop drawing. Look up here and listen. Proverbs 15.3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Judah and I were talking about this just recently. And Judah went ahead and remarked, which made me very happy and encouraged and proud as a father, that yes, that goes beyond even just seeing us in the dark and he sees our hearts. Kids, the eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. And one day we must all give an account and stand before God. 
And only those who are found in Christ will find forgiveness. Talk to your parents more about what this means. This is the reality of all humanity. You can't sneak out the back door. You can't wriggle out of God's grip. At its core, this verse is describing the idea that all creatures are in the grip of God, like a small pup held by the scruff of the neck, totally vulnerable, helpless, and exposed to the eyes of him of whom we must give an account. The word of God, God himself, discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, and we cannot fool him. So as we transition now to some other pieces of Hebrews and see how that fits together, as we kind of close out three and four's warnings, listen and heed those warnings, friends. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. As we strive to enter his rest, as we've already been encouraged, as we make every effort to not fall away by disobedience, We do this, as we enter now into what he's talking about, the high priest, we do this by looking to Jesus, the author, the finisher, the perfecter of our faith, by considering, as Pastor Matt encouraged us in chapter three, by considering Jesus, by considering Christ and boasting in him. The author here turns now to start to unpack the central theme of the letter of Hebrews. From 4.14, of Hebrews to 10:18 of Hebrews it's emphasizing the high priesthood of Jesus and this is the central theme of the letter. He's already mentioned this in passing in 2:17 and 3:1. If you want help with this, I put this in the looking ahead, go read the book of Leviticus because the author is assuming that people will know the book of Leviticus as the backdrop for what he's talking about here. In particular, Leviticus 8, 9, 10 and 16. He assumes you understand that, so if you don't, you'll be greatly helped by going and reading those passages, again, Leviticus 8, 9, 10, and 16, understanding the high priestly role and understanding the sacrificial system. You understand better how Jesus has fulfilled these things. So here what he wants to do in the next couple verses is he wants to unpack this idea of the high priesthood of Jesus, and this is basically the appetizer to the meat and potatoes that we will get into in the coming weeks. He wants us to do two things. There's two charges here, all right? First of all, we see he charges us to hold fast our confession. In verse 14, hold fast our confession. And the second thing in verse 16, we will see he tells us to draw near with confidence. So first of all, hold fast your confession. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. I think you probably heard me use this analogy before. Some of you are going to be scared at this analogy because I'm going to encourage your kid to go get tattoos or something. That's on you. I'm just giving an analogy. But sailors would tattoo hold fast on their knuckles. You ever seen anybody with tattooed uh, knuckles that say hold fast? All right. Brain always says that's the limit for her. No neck tattoos for me and no, no knuckle tattoos for me. So I can't, can't get hold fast on my knuckles. But they would do this as a reminder that in the midst of the storm, they must hold fast. In particular, it was a reminder to them to hold fast at their post. The rigging, the sails, the wheel, whatever it was. Do your job, sailor. Hold fast. Now, their confidence ultimately was that the ship would keep them afloat. But they also had a part to play. 
they must hold fast. And this hold fast tattoo could be seen by other crew members as a reminder that they were also expected to do their job. Because my job in holding onto my rope depends on you doing your job and holding onto your rope. Hold fast to your job. What are they hold, supposed to hold fast to? What are we supposed to hold fast to? What are we supposed to grip white knuckled to? Our own justification, our own works, our own sacrifice? No, we're supposed to hold fast to, what does he say? Our confession. What is our confession? That we have a great high priest. This is not rocket science as he's unpacking this. Hold fast that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Hold fast to what I have been unpacking for you, he's saying. Go back and read chapter one. Chapter one, hold fast to that. Jesus is the great high priest priest, your confession that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, as Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 15. The confession that Jesus is the last prophet, the perfect priest, and the exalted king. The confession that his cross was perfect, effective, and final. His resurrection was victorious. Like the high priest of the people, Jesus, the great high priest, made atonement with his own blood and has passed through the heavens to the holy of holies, to the very presence of God, to, for all eternity, make intercession on the behalf of his elect. That is good news. That's our confession. That's what we hold fast to. That's what we hold firm to. In light of all the warnings, in light of all the concern, in light of all the striving, hold fast to that. As you run the next mile, hold fast to that. That we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ, and he is there in heaven interceding on the behalf of his people. There for me he bears his scars and presents before the righteous judge his perfect life and sacrificial death on my behalf. This is the reality for all those who are in Christ. It is done, finished, sealed, final. There is no longer a sacrifice for sins. There is no other priest needed to present our sacrifices before God for forgiveness. This is one of the main arguments of the reformers in the face of the Catholic Church. We don't need you to go and intercede for us. We have a great high priest who has done so. The high priest of that day, his job was to take the offering from the people and their sins and present it to God. All my job now is to take what God has done and present it to you and say, look at the work of Christ. It is done. It is finished. It is final. The great high priest has offered up himself once and for all. There is no other way. He is the way, and he has made this way, Hebrews 10, 20 says, the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. This is the way. Uh, you, you Philistines. I knew I was going to get some of you on that pagan quote. The Philistines. No. Don't try to redeem it. It's actually a good show. Hold fast your confession. Hold fast your confession. Consider Jesus. Boast in him. He who has begun a good work in you will see it to completion. 
He's the builder of the house. And he is building something beautiful and perfect. The gates of hell will not stop the church. Second thing here in verse 16, draw near with confidence. So with that confession, draw near now with confidence. Let us draw let us then now with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help in time of need. With confidence. A.W. Pink says this about the confidence that we have to draw near. Herein too, we may behold again the immeasurable superiority of Christianity over Judaism. The Israelites were confined to the outer court. None at all save the high priest was permitted to draw near to God within the veil. But all Christians, the youngest, weakest, most ignorant, have been made nigh. And in consequence, freedom of access to the very throne of deity is now their rightful and blessed portion. I just started the Gospel of John this morning in my personal reading, and I was reminded of John 1.12. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. The confidence that we have in Christ is that we have a right to be there. The high priest would only enter the Holy of Holies with great fear. The earthly high priest would enter with great fear after a very rigorous um, making of sacrifices for himself. The bells on the bottom of his robe, if they stopped jingling in the Holy of Holies, you knew something went wrong. It's legend. Uh, we don't have a lot of uh, sure facts for this, but it's legend that they tied a rope around his foot in case God was angry and caused him to die. they just pull him out because they for sure weren't going to go in there. With great fear, he entered. He entered only once behind the curtain once a year to make atonement. Rigorous preparation. Get in, sprinkle the blood, and get out. Matthew 27, what does Jesus cry from the cross? Jesus cried again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And what does it say in verse 51? And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. God himself reaches down and rips it apart. Now there has been made a way through the very flesh of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10, 19 Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Can I preach that one too? Okay, thank you. For those who are in Christ, the throne of righteousness has now also become a throne of grace. You grasp that this morning? And listen, for some of you, this, you've been around church a long time, you've heard these ideas, you have heard this blessed passage over and over and over about entering into the holy place with confidence. You've heard that over and over again, but maybe it's lost its significance. Maybe you've kind of lost the awe in which the Israelites should have had and the respect and the rightful fear that the Israelites should have had when they were carrying the Ark of the Covenant. And it's just become kind of second place for me. My hope is that your, your all would be rekindled. 
covered by the blood of Christ, redeemed sinners may stand before the glory, the full glory of Almighty God. Exodus, what what does Moses say? I want to see your glory. God says it'll kill you. So he puts him in the cleft of the rock. This is why we sing that song, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. God has hidden us in Christ, and because of Christ and his righteousness and his blood covering, we can stand in the full glory of Almighty God. We are permitted to speak plainly, honestly bearing our souls. The Greek word here really conveys this idea of confidence, with boldness, with courage, especially speaking before someone with great rank and power. It indicates that Christians may come before God and speak plainly and honestly and bearing their souls before Almighty God. This does not mean that we can address God without reverence. When you think about the idea of a prince, a prince has the complete freedom to enter the throne room with confidence. He has a right to be there by blood. The king is his father. Yet he still conducts himself with the appropriate reverence in the presence of the king. Although he is the king's heir, he still bows his knee and refers to his father as your majesty. So there's a reverence that we have here, but we have a right to be there. A right to be there. Those who are in Christ may come with confidence, without fear, that they will incur any shame or punishment. For those who are in Christ, now this throne is a throne of grace. We may stand in the full glory and even call the Almighty Father. This is what made the Jews so angry at Jesus. He called him Father, and he instructed his followers to do the same. This cannot be. Yet for those who are in Christ, the weakest believer is permitted access if they are in Christ. We may call him Father because of the one who sits at his right hand. Jesus, the great high priest who is at God's right hand, helping from heaven those who are in need of forgiveness and need strength in temptation. This is our confidence, and this is what we boast about. In the song, it goes like this, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. How long will Christ stand in heaven? Forever and ever and ever. Amen? No tongue can bid me thence depart. We could stop there and be encouraged. I was, I read it, I was like, that's good, that's it. But there's more. Wait, there's more. What the author is encouraging us to do here in the presence of God is to confidently ask for help in time of need. You ever in need of help? I am. He says we are to receive here. We promise to receive in asking for help. Mercy, we receive mercy and find grace. And he's saying this in light of the previous warnings in this striving in our racing, in our running, in our making every effort to not fall away, but to enter in to that rest, we are able to boast in the confidence that Christ is the great high priest, 
that he has finished the work on our behalf, that he is preserving, therefore we persevere. And when we are tempted to fall away, when we are tempted to despair, when we are tempted to not hold fast our confession, we may with boldness run into the very throne room of God and ask for help receiving mercy and finding grace. So receiving mercy, what does this mean? It means as we draw near with confidence, we draw near knowing that the penalty of our sin has been paid for. We have received something we have, did not deserve. We have received mercy. Romans 8. Go read Romans 8, by the way, afterwards, after this sermon. Go read Romans 8. Hopefully it will make more sense to you. Hopefully it will uh, be more glorious to you. Romans 8 starts like this. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's good news, and that's the confidence in which we enter. That's the mercy we have received. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And our hearts are exposed, and the word of God cuts deep to expose the thoughts and intentions. And we say, yes, I am undeserving, but Christ died for sinners. Yes, I am weak, but Christ has given me mercy. Jesus is our propitiation. Jesus took the punishment that we rightly deserved. He took the record of our debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Remember that sermon where we talked about that? Satan holding the big folder of your sins before God crying guilty as the accuser day and night, and he's right to do so. And what Jesus does in that moment is he, on the cross is he takes the big folder of debt out of the devil's hands and with his own blood he writes pardoned on it and he nails it to his cross, Colossians says. So therefore the one who had the power over death no longer has that power anymore. You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. But God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. So Romans 8, 33 through 34 says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God and who is interceding for us. We receive mercy. I have a right to be here. The glory of God and his holiness will not consume me because my sins are covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. Praise God. And for, and for, for, a, for a Jewish audience, those who were, were, were understanding the gospel for the first time, this was a much more beautiful, crazy idea for them because they understood the sheer power of the glory of God and how no one could stand in his presence, not even the great Moses. And yet you're saying that if we are in Christ that we can stand before the presence of his glory with joy? Wow. Find mercy, receive mercy, rather, find grace. There's more. We draw near with confidence knowing that our sin has been paid, but there is this, and this is really the heart that the author is getting after, I think. We draw near with confidence knowing that the power of sin has been broken. The power of sin has been broken. Romans 8, 36. In Christ, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This is why we sing in that song, Rock of Ages, be of sin the double cure. 
save from wrath and make me pure, or as another translation says, save from guilt and power. So on the cross, Jesus pays the penalty for my sin and he breaks the power of sin, so it's a double cure. Save from the wrath of God and make me pure. So we enter the throne room with confidence, knowing this, that the folder of our sins has been marked forgiven and pardoned, but there's more. There is no longer a sacrifice for sin because Jesus has given those who are in him his righteousness. So when God looks at that folder, he not only sees forgiven written on it in his son's own blood, but upon opening it, he sees the perfect record of his son contributed to you. The imputed righteousness of Christ, his perfect life, his perfect faithfulness now given to you. That's why sin has no more power over those who are in Christ. And this is the heart, I believe, of what the author is trying to get us to, un- to grasp as at the tail end of these warnings and walking into Jesus as the great high priest. To not fall away, but persevere. He wants you to understand this. He wants you to know this. Perseverance is actually possible. Victory over sin is actually possible. You can have freedom and walk in newness of life and belief versus unbelief. What is it? What is the besetting sin right now? What is the sin that you fight day in and day out? What is the one that plagues you over and over again? Think of it. Which one is it? Bring it to your mind right now. What the scripture is telling you right now in this moment, if you are in Christ, is that that has been paid for and the power of it over you has been broken. It no longer has a hold upon you. And you can walk in that reality. Take courage, rejoice. Jesus has defeated sin. Resurrection power is yours if you would but believe. So fight unbelief. Fight it. Don't you lay down. Get up. Keep fighting. Keep striving. Hold fast to your confession. Believe, believe, believe. Fight against unbelief. James is excited. You should be too. Because this fighting is not in your own strength. It's already been won. It's already been accomplished. And though it seems hard for us, it is not for our Savior. You can walk. I wish I could just pound this into your heads. Like we can walk in newness of life and the Spirit of God is trying to pound this into my heart this week. I just can't, I just can't overcome it. I, I just can't seem to get beyond it. It's an unbelief problem. You don't believe that Jesus truly has paid the penalty and broken the power. And listen, if, 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 if in our unpacking of this passage doesn't help, then let's talk. Let's talk about it. Let's work it out. Let's work out your salvation together in honesty and humility. Some of you are making changes right now in your life. Praise God, whether it's in your family or whatever it is. And some of you are beginning to get discouraged as the race seems to get a little harder, as the temptations begin to rise a little bit. As the fiery trial rises, so also rises the desire to escape that fiery trial by temptation. Some of you are reaping the consequences of what you have sown before. 
And instead of being discouraged about that, be humble about it and say, I'm reaping some of the negative consequences. And now I am seeking to sow in the spirit righteousness and trust that God will bring about a good harvest. Let's work together on this. Whatever that besetting sin is, I can stand up here and say over and over again that Jesus has defeated it, the power has been broken. If you need to talk about it more, please, let's talk. Let's work through it together so that you can know without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ is victorious over it and you can walk away from it. Run to find grace in the time of your need, in the time of your temptation. 1 Corinthians 10, God says, excuse me, Paul says, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You may be able to endure it. But it's too hard, you might say. I'm unable to endure it. No one has faced as much temptation as I have in this area. As I look at my past, I see the reasons why I fail, and maybe I give myself excuses for that. No one else has suffered this much in this area of temptation. That's not true. Others have. But regardless, the Scripture says that Jesus has faced the full weight of temptation, and he was victorious. C.S. Lewis says this about Jesus being tempted and yet being faithful. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of the wind not by laying down, but walking against it. We never find out the strength of evil, the evil impulse inside of us, until we try to fight against it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, it is also the only man, he is also the only man who knows to the full what that temptation means. This is why we see Christ, the true and better Adam, the son of God and son of man, who when tempted in the garden never yielded, never sinned, the full weight of temptation as he endured to the end. You will be tempted like our Lord Jesus, but like him, you can say no to sin and yes to the Spirit. I, I think that the adults need to hear this more than the kids this morning. That's why I'm talking real simple. Jesus broke its power. It has no more power over you if you are in Christ. If you are still walking in submission to your sin, it's because you do not believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And let's work on that. I don't understand the humdrum Christian life. You know what I mean? How you doing? Oh, just a sinner saved by grace. You know? I, I get it. But so many sad, mundane Christians. Like, you, well, Pastor Jeff, you know, I, I know that I should uh, believe in these things, but you tell me that victory is mine? Yes, victory is yours. Power to overcome is yours. Well, you should be a realist. Like, I get that, but how does that actually meet real life? You should be a realist. I am a realist. This, this really happened. I believe this, that Jesus defeated sin and death. And we find grace for today and assurance of future grace tomorrow when we enter the throne room. Strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow. You really can't overcome. And I could go on and on about that, but look, if you're really not getting that, let's talk about it, Okay. Talk to one of your elders. Let's work through your unbelief to see how you can walk in newness of life. 
Before I go any further here as we kind of zero in on the application, let me just say this. Let's be careful that we don't abuse this text. Many have abused this text. This confidence before the throne is not for those who want to grab and run, as it were. This is not for the people who want God to bless their life endeavors, but other than that, like, they don't really don't give any thought to God and his ways or the things that he loves. People ask me all the time to pray for them, that God would bless them, keep them safe, whatever. And so many people want the comfort of God that he offers without having to conform to his will. Give me the comfort that he offers, but don't ask me to conform to his will. They want all the perks that are supposed to be offered only to those who are in Christ. Give me the perks, but don't call me into work. Like, give me the company car and, and the bonus, and all that, but don't expect me to work. Give me the community of the church, but don't give me the accountability of the church. Give me the comforting Jesus, but not the commanding one. Give me the rest of God, but don't expect me to strive to enter it. So don't abuse this text. As he drills down even further into this idea of, of finding, receiving mercy, finding grace, we have to look at another verse here. Jesus is able to help. I learned, some of you who are music nerds probably know this. <clears throat> My wife knew this. I didn't because she's good with music. There's this thing called sympathetic resonance. You know what that is? Well, maybe I'm not as dumb as I thought. Um, <laughs> all right, so here's the definition. Uh, or, or sympathetic vibration. It's a harmonic phenomenon wherein a passive string or a vibratory body responds to an external vibration to one that has the same like uh, harmony likeness. So a classic example of this is demonstrated by two similarly tuned tuning forks. You strike one and the other one will kind of answer. Or if you're in a room with two pianos and you strike one key on a piano, the other uh, string will, will quietly vibrate and answer of the same note. And this is what it's like to understand that Jesus understands how we feel. Jesus feels our trials, temptations, and tribulations. Our pain echoes in his heart. Our trials are felt by him. Because when Jesus went to heaven, he still is in his resurrected body. What a beautiful, side note, what a beautiful and glorious thing what a sacrificial and good God that we serve, that Jesus Christ, when he comes to earth, he is chosen for all of eternity to maintain his human body, his resurrected body. This gives him sympathy with us. Our pain echoes in his heart. Remember, we talked about this in Hebrews 2.18, where because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He's saying the same thing here in, in verse 15. Well, fast your confession, draw near, Find, or receive mercy, find grace. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And this is a sweet comfort and reassurance to the follower of Jesus. Jesus Christ knows how you feel. He knows how you feel. But that astounds me. 
He knows the trials and the tribulations that his people face in this life. He knows what it's like to be slandered. He knows the pain of others gossiping. He knows what it's like for others to tell lies about him, about you. He knows what it's like for people to say that they will love him and be faithful to him in the end and then they abandon him. He knows what it's like for his family to think he's nuts. He knows physical pain. He knows the fight against anxiety. He knows sleepless nights. He knows hard work. What a wonder that the God of the universe knows how you feel. He understands the big trials and he understands the silly little ones. You know, sometimes we come bursting into the throne room like our kids come bursting into our bedroom crying about something that's not that big of a deal. You ever had that happen? Me and Tiffany have had that happen. My kids do that. So I have Judah's permission to share this story. Um, two weeks ago it was. So Judah has inherited his father's sensitive eyes. Like I, I can be wearing the best safety gear on my eyes and, I, and, and like cutting wood and I'll still get uh, um, sawdust in my eyes. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. I, I hate eye drops. Like y'all who, y'all who have contacts are just freaks. I don't know how you do that. Putting some on your eyeball. That's the weirdest thing, right? Isn't that the weirdest thing, Kyle? Don't, my wife's in there just like, boop. And like, I don't, that's weird, right? I'm not going to do that. So Judah's inherited his dad's sense of his eyes. So something gets in your, my eye, I'm just like going crazy. It looks like there's like a raccoon stopped in my face and I'm just fighting it. I'm just like, ah, something in my eye. So it's four in the morning about two weeks ago. Um, and my dear son, Judah, comes, he's grinning. He comes busting into our room at four in the morning. I got something in my eye. And it's always the same pitch. Doesn't matter. I got something in my eye. I jump up with like, I'm always prepared. I have like knives and I'm like ready to fight who's ever come in. Bryn understands, you know, she's always ready. She's very calm. She just calmly rises out of bed. I'm still fighting with the sheets, cutting the sheets up. And she rises out of bed and walks him into the bathroom. He's literally like writhing with his face into the bathroom. And all I see is this tumbled craziness going into the bathroom. And I, I'm like, what's happening? Finally, I figure out kind of what's happening. And um, oh, <laughs> my son likes to do this eye dance. I don't know where he learned it, not from me. When you get something in his eye, he goes like, ah! it's just like in circles and circles with something in his eye. And I see him, the shadow, dancing in circles at four in the morning in the bathroom. Um, and um, he says, get it out of my eye. And Bryn says, I can't see anything because it's dark. He's like, well, well, turn the light on. So she flips the light on. And he goes, ah, turn the light off. It's too bright. So she turns the light off. And he's like, get it out of my eye. Happened like three times. Light on, light off, light on, light off. And finally, she, like, I walk in and she's literally like, got him in a headlock. And she's like, getting this thing out of his eye. And, and you finally got it out, right, bud? Yeah? And I, I sympathize with you more than mama did, I know, because I know what it's like to have sensitive eyes. But it was like, oh, this is not that big of a deal. Now, to him, it was a big deal, right? And, and that's a funny story, but really at its core, I want you to understand this, that that is the kind of confidence that we have to enter the throne room of grace. And, and sometimes when we enter, <laughs> it's really silly, and God doesn't look at us and say, well, you're still human, right? No, he says, come and receive mercy and find grace. And so sometimes we come bursting into the throne room, like our kids come bursting into our bedrooms, crying about something that's really not that big of a deal. Sometimes all we need from our parents and all we need from God is a tender assurance that it's okay. Sometimes what we need is what our kids need. Yeah, I know that hurts. <laughs> it's okay. You're going to be all right. Other times, I don't know if you have to do this, just need some breathing help. Just breathe. It's not that big of a deal. 
Often, I think God does to me what we've done with our kids sometimes when they're freaking out is they're sitting on our lap and we're patting them saying it's okay and we're holding back chuckles. <laughs> it's not that big of a deal, man. It's really not. Maybe our conversation has to be how foolish it was, your behavior. Like you shouldn't shoot your brother point blank with a bow and arrow. True story. That's foolish. We do have this confidence to enter in. Jesus knows our every weakness, the hymn says, so take it to the Lord in prayer. Hebrews 5.2 says he can deal, speaking of the earthly high priest, he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. It means that the high priest understood the weakness of the people because he himself was weak. He was human. The earthly high priest understood this as he represented the people. He understood how hard their temptations were. In the same way, Jesus understands us and knows the weight of our temptation because he was made like us, yet without sin. That's the joy. That's the beauty. Unlike this earthly priest, Jesus never gave in to temptation. He is the merciful and faithful high priest. So another, another way, though, to go further here, don't abuse the analogy I just gave about kids kind of bursting into the throne room. Again, we must come with the proper reverence, and don't abuse the text in this way either. Some people can abuse this text and believe that it is saying falsely that Jesus he is showing what we would call a sinful empathy for us. Jesus knows how you feel and loves me, and therefore he gives me a pass. He does not speak the truth to me and call me to walk in newness of life. He just says, it's okay, I get it. That's not what Jesus is doing. That's not what this text is saying. Yes, you have boldness to come into the throne room, even to call God Abba, Dada, Father, but it's to find help. Find mercy, yes but also to be strengthened in our confidence to go out and walk in newness of life and walk in this reality that has been given to us in Christ. He knows how you feel. He was faithful. He beat sin. Jesus did get into the pit for you. But he got into the pit to pull you out of the pit and set your feet on the solid ground. So this is where you understand that Jesus is able to sympathize with your weakness. He knows how you feel and you Pair that with, he has been tempted like we are, yet without sin. Therefore, he gives me the victory over it. Jesus knows the way out of the pit. That's what it's saying. And you don't have to stay in the pit. He doesn't get down in the pit in the mud and say, man, this sucks. Let's just stay here for a while. No, he brings you out of the pit. He opens your eyes to the reality of the muck that you thought was a day at the beach. And he brings you out of the pit. And once you're out of the pit, he tells you, and this is what you do when you enter the throne room of grace, is a reminder that you don't have to go back to the pit. In fact, the whole of the Christian life is walking further away from the pit of unbelief. Further and further and further and further away. And that's what we are doing when we go before the throne of God. We are saying, God, speak the truth to me. Comfort me in the truth. Sympathize with me in the truth. Empower me with the truth that I might walk as Jesus has walked in the face of temptation. Jesus suffered human pain and human temptation. He endured faithful through it all, physical, mental, emotional hardship, and yet not once did he give way to sin. So if you are in Christ, the same resurrection power is yours. Therefore, you got cancer, you have power to persevere through it, be sanctified by it, and if you die from it, victory is yours. 
This is why Paul he didn't know what to do with the guy. I've mentioned this before. He preaches the gospel. Stop preaching the gospel. Well, I'm not going to preach the gospel. I'm going to put you in prison, and we're going to persecute you. Well, I get to be persecuted for the sake of Christ. Well, we're going to kill you. I get to be with Jesus. They didn't know what to do with him because he understood this truth. Jesus sympathizes with me. He has been tempted. He understands, but he never gave way to sin. Therefore, I am being tempted. I am suffering. He knows how I feel, but he's not going to give me an excuse. He's going to give me a way out of the pit. He can help me walk in newness of life. When tempted with lust, Jesus has given you the power to say no to the flesh and say yes to cultivating a glorious marriage. Anxiety, depression, doubt, whatever it is, Jesus was tempted in every way, yet without sin, and he's given you the same power. So in the face of your trials and temptations, consider Jesus. Boast in Jesus. This is the thing that helps us overcome the world. Revelation 12, 11, speaking of the faithful who had persevered, and they have conquered him, meaning the devil, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Run to Jesus to find mercy, receive mercy, and find grace to walk in newness of life. A longer quote, one of my lesser amazing quotes, a scripture, and then we're done. A.W. Pink says this, this longer quote, this is so good. And having such a high priest in heaven, can we lose courage? Can we draw back in cowardice, impotence, and faithlessness? Can we give up our profession, our allegiance, or our obedience to Christ? Or shall we not be like Joshua and Caleb, who followed the Lord fully? Let us hold fast our profession. Let us persevere and fight the good fight of faith. Our great high priest is in the highest glory. He is our righteousness and strength. He loves, he watches, he prays, he holds fast, and we shall never perish. Jesus is our Moses, who in the heights above prays for us. Jesus is our true Joshua, who gained the victory over our enemies. Only be strong and of good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. In the mirror of the word in which we behold our sin and weakness, we behold also the image of that perfect one who has passed through the conflict and temptation, who has, who has the high priest, bears us on his loving heart as our shepherd of the flock holds us safely forevermore. Boldly now we come to the throne of grace. In Jesus we draw near to the Father. The throne of majesty and righteousness is unto us a throne of grace. The Lord is our God. There is not merely grace on the throne, but the throne is altogether a throne of grace. It is grace which disciplines us by the sharp, piercing word it is grace which looks on us when we have denied him and makes us weep bitterly. Jesus always intercedes. The throne is always a throne of grace. The lamb is in the midst of the throne. Hence, come boldly, end quote. So here, before the throne, we come boldly, constantly come day by day to find help in time of need. 
Nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to his cross we cling. Once naked, now clothed in his righteousness. Upon every entry our dependence on him grows. Truth is proclaimed, comfort is given, joy is restored, courage is gathered. Forgiveness empowered in his might, safe in the grip of God. With this passage we close. Romans 8, you gotta go read this. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Ephesians 1, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He has given you all the righteousness of Christ, all the tools and weapons of Christ. Who shall bring any charge against God elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution or famine or nakedness, danger or the sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep for the slaughter. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that we have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So Father, I pray that we would walk in this newness of life that has been given to us by our faithful high priest who has fought the fight, who has finished the course, May we walk in that strength. May we fight the good fight of faith. May we finish the course. May we run to you in boldness, knowing that our sins are forgiven. May we run to you to be reminded that victory is ours and that we can walk in the same victory that Christ Jesus walked when he was faithless temptation. We thank you for this glorious truth. I pray for any of those who still may be trying to work out their salvation, in particular when it comes to overcoming specific sin. May you give them courage and humility to talk to the people around them, to share with their home group, to come talk to one of their elders, talk to their spouse, whatever it may be. For our children in our midst this morning, Father, I thank you for the the privilege of being able to uh, share the gospel with them this morning. I pray for their parents, that their parents would have boldness as they bring them up in the Lord, that you'd help each one of them to put faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins. Of course, in Jesus' name we pray. All these things for your glory and for our joy. Amen.